0: I don't participate in the national debate anymore, because the one thing I've never heard anyone say is, I stand corrected. The only minds we have control over changing is our own. The very best we can hope with others is to inspire them. And the most effective way to inspire is with love, authenticity and by creating an an environment where people are willing to listen to what you have to say. If you're tired of all the blaming and political gridlock, if you're tired of waiting around hoping others will solve society's problems, if you're ready to take simple steps to make lasting change, you've come to the right place. Ready to be inspired? This is the Stakeholder Enterprise. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Paul Lovejoy. On this episode, we're going to learn about the Adrian Dominicans, an order of Catholic nuns who for the last 50 years have been dedicated activist investors. We're going to find out how these women religious alongside other faith-based groups became the largest source of investment to help trailblaze the market-based approach of community development financial institutions. These institutions are committed to developing underserved, disenfranchised, and poverty-stricken communities. Finally, we're going to discover why these communities are disproportionately African American and Native American communities. So let's start things off with some numbers. According to the 2019 U.S. Census Bureau, Blacks represent 13.2% of the total U.S. population. However, they make up 23.8% of the poverty population. If African Americans just had their proportionate share of the 34 million people living in poverty that year, they would have 4.5 million individuals. But it wasn't. It was 8 million, almost double their proportionate share. The only group with a larger disproportionate share of people living in poverty was the Native American community at two and a half times. Both of these communities have been denied financial and economic opportunity legally until 1968. And according to some advocacy groups, it's still being practiced today. So is economic discrimination as bad as it was in 1968? Not even close. So why is it for the last 20 years that the percentage of African American and Native American poverty population has been stable while the poverty population of Asian and Hispanic Americans have been steadily declining. Let's start unraveling this puzzle by taking a look at the Native Americans. They were historically denied financial opportunity being that they were relegated to remote reservations hundreds of miles from commerce centers. This still poses a problem today. Another factor is that Native Americans across the country rely heavily on a single economic revenue source, such as federal subsidies, gaming operations, or natural resource extraction, which leaves the Native population incredibly vulnerable to market shifts. Historically speaking, Native Americans went straight from a foraging economy to a welfare economy with little or no knowledge of what capitalism even is. The denial of financial opportunities to the African-American community are widely known and well-documented. First, there was slavery where they were considered a good and not a human being. Then there were the Jim Crow laws which were laws to legally put black citizens into indentured servitude to take voting rights away, to control where they lived and how they traveled, and to seize children for labor purposes. Also, there was the practice of redlining, which is the refusal of financial services, typically loans or insurance, to someone because they lived in an area classified as hazardous to investment another contributing factor are the differences in rates of return on investments according to the study titled racial differences in patterns of wealth accumulation found little evidence that black households earned lower returns on the same assets as white households however They found that portfolios held by black households were more concentrated in low average return assets. For example, white households held larger concentration of assets in real estate, farms or businesses, and stock, while black households held higher concentrations in savings, vehicles, and cash. Cash sometimes held under their mattresses. It doesn't take an economist to understand that you're going to get a higher return on a stock portfolio versus cash held under your mattress. How do you expect someone to trust an institution to invest their money if these same institutions either routinely denied credit or promoted predatory loans? And finally, there's the disparity of earned labor income. According to the 2016 report from the Economic Policy Institute, they found that as of 2015, relative to the average hourly wages of white men with the same education, experience, metro status, and region of residence, that black men make 22% less. And black women make 34% less. And when you combine all of these factors, it will lead to a huge deficiency in intergenerational wealth transfer. You will inherit nothing if your parents die penniless. So what can be done about this? Solutions fall into ideological extremes, ranging from a simple increase of personal responsibility to full-on reparations accomplished by either a massive tax increase of the wealthiest individuals or by increasing our national debt. However, most economists agree that there are four objectives that need to be achieved. Number one, there needs to be steady, targeted, organic growth of financial services in neighborhoods previously classified as hazardous to investment. This would allow individuals who live in these areas access to credit, small business loans, and venture capital. Number two, there also needs to be a huge increase in financial education and investment advisory services in these same neighborhoods. Number three, case management, communities that both encourage and hold each other accountable in their pursuit to become financially successful. And lastly, and most importantly, early childhood education. A 2020 study conducted by researchers at UCLA, the University of Nebraska, and the World Bank reviewed the long-term economic effects of early childhood education in the federal government's Head Start program. Upon collecting and analyzing 60 years of data, the study found that among eligible participants, it greatly improved the likelihood of obtaining financial self-sufficiency in adulthood, it reduced the incidence of adult poverty by 23%, and reduce the receipt of public assistance income by 27%. In the 1960s, the U.S. government tried to address these objectives with the War on Poverty. By the end of the decade, it became apparent that the government's efforts were largely unsuccessful, with funding drying up to continue this fight. However, lessons were learned. And the leaders of the war on poverty decided to take a different approach, a market-based one. For this approach to work, it requires investors that are willing to give up market financial returns for modest ones. But what these investments lacked in financial gains, they more than made up with social gains. The question is, who would these investors be? What types of individuals or groups would be willing to sacrifice larger financial returns, especially in the 1970s and 80s? Enter the Order of the Adrian Dominicans. They are a congregation of vowed Catholic nuns whose origin is traced back to the 13th century in St. Dominic. His gospel is grounded in study, contemplation, and meeting people where and as they were. The Dominican Order are pioneers of social justice reform. In 1510, Dominican friars traveled from Spain to the island of Hispaniola to preach against the abuse of natives in the New World. These first Dominican friars inspired and influenced the European settlers there, that when they got their independence from Spain, they called their country the Dominican Republic. Here in the United States, the Adrian Dominicans have continued this legacy of social justice reform and have gained notoriety as activist investors since 1975. The nuns at that time, formed the Portfolio Advisory Board to evaluate the congregation's investments to see if they lived up to the teachings of the gospel. If one of the corporations they held positions in engaged in practices that conflicted with their beliefs, they wanted to figure out how they can change those practices. If you've been woke to social injustice for 500 years, well, you don't try and reform by canceling, publicly shaming, or through external force. They understood that true, significant, lasting change comes from within. So their portfolio advisory board filed shareholder resolutions, voted proxies, engaged in dialogue with corporate management, and spoke up at annual shareholder meetings. In the 70s, this tactic yielded little results. So when they became aware of the practice of redlining, they saw an opportunity to redirect some of their efforts by investing in the community development bank of Shore Bank on the south side of Chicago. By investing in a community development financial institution, they knew how their money was going to be used and who was benefiting from it. The south side of Chicago is an African-American community that has been plagued by high rates of violent crime and other ills of poverty. It's estimated that 40 to 60% of the residents there live below the poverty line, and in an area that historically has been deemed hazardous to investment. The nuns were quite pleased with their investments in Shore Bank and decided to continue to search out and invest in other community development financial institutions around the country. So what exactly is a Community Development Financial Institution, or CDFI for short. To be a certified CDFI, organizations must meet the following criteria. They must have a primary mission of promoting community development, provide both financial and educational services. They must serve and maintain accountability to one or more defined target markets, and they must be a legal, non-governmental entity with the exception of tribal governments. There are four types of CDFIs, which are community development banks, credit unions, venture capital firms, and loan funds. All four types of CDFIs have a distinctive purpose, from providing retail banking services to financing affordable workforce housing and early childhood education centers to offering small business loans, all in communities that have been historically classified as hazardous to investment the Adrian Dominican sisters have invested in all four types of these CDFIs. They even started their own loan fund, and as of 2018, they have made loans totaling over $31 million. The nuns, along with the entire coalition of faith-based investors, invested more money in community development financial institutions than any other source of, until the passage of the CDFI Act in 1994, which passed unanimously in the Senate and in the House 410-12. to Despite the impressive impact that the nuns and CDFIs have had on low-income communities, there are still large areas of poverty that have little or no CDFI representation there is still poverty, there is still a racial wealth gap, and there is still income inequality. The conditions responsible for the racial wealth gap persisted for hundreds of years in this country, and it will take time for humanity to make things right. However, there is something that we can all do to speed up this process, At the time of this recording, there are three online platforms where everyday individuals can invest in community development and CDFIs. The returns are modest, but as of today, all three funds have reported that they have paid back 100% of principal and interest to investors since the fund's inception. You can even do an online search for a CDFI in a community you care about and invest directly with them. So are the Black and Native American low-income communities really hazardous to investment? In 2015, the Opportunity Finance Network collected data from their 200 member CDFIs and found that their loan default ratio mirrored that of mainstream financial institutions. These neighborhoods weren't hazardous to investment. They were prosperous to investment. So how is it that people from low-income communities with little track record of credit or business experience are able to pay back loans at the same rate as their privileged counterparts from middle-income communities? this is explained with one word trust in psychology there is something called the neuroscience of trust this is the idea that when others trust in you you will perform better cdfis provide the needed support and education for low-income individuals to succeed and when they get a loan you're essentially telling them I trust you because I trust you will pay me back. My name is Paul Lovejoy. Thanks for joining me. Wait a minute. One more thing. So whatever happened to the Adrian Dominicans and their filing of shareholder resolutions? After 43 years, the nuns made history and had their first resolution passed on May 9th. 2018, 69% of shareholders of the world's largest gun manufacturer, Sturm, Ruger & Company, voted in favor of passing a resolution to produce an assessment of how shootings in the United States could threaten the company's reputation and financial health. Ruger Management complied with the resolution. Stakeholder Enterprise is a limited series podcast and an activist investment advisory firm. Our mission, to create a community of financial activists and to guide them into reforming our unjust financial system by being the change they wish to see in the world so that the generation being born today will have a market-based economy that looks out for the well-being of ourselves, each other, and our planet's finite resources. If you'd like to discover the three steps to reform our unjust financial system legally, ethically, and without confrontation, visit stakeholderenterprise.com.